0: As I said, we're starting the book of James, and if you don't know, the book of James is one of the most debated books in the Bible as to as to what it's about. Some uh, say that this book is uh, full of of profound and uh, yet random kind of wisdom. Uh, it's one of those, they, they, they look at it a little bit like one of those devotional daily calendar, calendars where it's just got these little bits of inspirational, practical wisdom for life and there's not a lot of line of thought through it. It's just one thing after another. And they kind of love it for that. And you can look at James and, and take it in these small bits and learn a lot from it that way. Great book to meditate on. Others don't really like this book that much. They see it as a bit of a legalistic book uh, because it's got, uh, I think, 54 commands in about five chapters, uh, and uh, all these do's and don'ts. And the book only mentions Jesus twice, and one of that, one of those is, you know, right in the, uh, in the first words, in the welcome. In fact, the great Martin Luther called this book an epistle of straw because he thought it was so focused on works. That it was promoting kind of a works based salvation, first versus salvation by grace alone. But I think what we need to do to really understand this book is kind of look at a theme that's running all the way through the book that ties all these things together, and that is the idea of integration. James wants his listeners, these scattered Hebrew. Christians of the the 12 tribes of the dispersions, as he says, to have a fully integrated faith. A holistic Christianity that really gets to every area of their life functionally. We see this early on in in verse 4 here of the text. He says this, "...and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete." lacking in nothing. From the very start, he says, he, he, he talks about these trials and tribulations, and then he says he wants it all to reach its full effect in their life, that they may be perfect. And it's not perfect as in flawless. It's perfect as in complete. The word is telias. It's the It has to do with the end goal. He wants it to reach its end in them. An idea, in a sense, is it's kind of a wholeness made to be complete Christians where our faith is, is wholly lived out in our lives. We might say a life of integrity. You see, when uh, James knows that these, these baby Christians are, uh, are faltering, that they are struggling with what he calls double-mindedness, Look at verse 8 of our text, at the end of our text. He, said, he, is, he says, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. As he looks at what's going on, he talks about a man that is double-minded, unstable. Flip over to chapter 4, verse 8, we see the same idea. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Clean your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now this term in the Greek literally means twin-souled. They they are divided in their desires and allegiances. They have come to Jesus by faith. They've received salvation. They've given their life over to him. They love him. All those things that we would say, but there are these other things they still want as well. These other loves, primarily, I think, a self-love. So they are torn. They are split. There is this spiritual division in them. Their singular devotion is waning. They're lacking integrity in their faith. This is what James is addressing all the way through this book. Verse 22, look here. Just in the beginning, he talks about hearing and doing the word. And look what he says. But be doers of the word and not just hearers deceiving yourselves. They're not living consistently with the words they claim. They're split. Then in chapter 2, it's about uh, partiality. Look what he says in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors. They are claiming to treat everybody the same in Christ, but they are showing partiality to the wealthy. They are loving wealth more than the truth they know from Scripture. Chapter 3, taming the tongue. He says to them in verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10, From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. They are split. They are divided, even as they speak. And then in chapter 4, note this, on worldliness, verse 3 of chapter 4, You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? They are divided. They are trying to have both God and the world, and it's, it's ripping them apart, individually and corporately, as we'll see. And this tells us something about the book, this theme all the way through of, the, of their dividedness. Their splitness when it comes to their devotion and their faith. You know what it tells us? It tells us this book is very relevant to today. We are divided people ourselves. Each one of us. We know this when we when we try to just you know go purchase shoes or something, right? We're divided. We can't even make up our mind. We talk about being in two minds. We know this when we interact socially. We speak of somebody being two-faced. We understand this dividedness at a very simple level. Modern psychologists know this. They place all of us on a spectrum of dividedness. You know that? They kind of start with the inside. We may just be divided by extremes of personality, and then we're divided by compartments in our life until we have completely two split personalities. Where are we on the spectrum of dividedness? And do you know what their answer is, what their healing is? You need to be whole. You need to be integrated. And, and we, we, we talk about that. We look up to the person who has it all together. So James is very modern in a way. He's ahead of his time, isn't he? All this speaking of being integrated, and whole. Well, actually, not really. He's not ahead of his time. Dividedness and brokenness. Splitness have been with us from the very start. You just have to turn to the very first pages of your Bible and you see it. That as soon as we sinned against our God, we were divided from him. And then it divided Adam and Eve from each other. And then we see there's an internal division in them. They're made in the image of God, but in rebellion against him. Split, broken people. That is all of us. And this dividedness of sin brings a very dark hue even into our Christian lives. You feel it. I feel it. I feel it when I do or say that thing that is so inconsistent with what I believe. That that I, that I, I, I say phrases like, I can't believe I did that. I didn't even know. How did I, how did I do that? How did I, I can't believe I said that. And then, like a week later, I can't believe I did it again. Those inconsistencies that just betray or our, our portray our dividedness. I say I want to follow Christ with a singular devotion, and I mean it. But then I find myself lured by the material stuff of this world, living for the next shiny thing. I say I want to love my kids with all that I am and I mean it, but then I find myself at times screaming at them like I hate them because I'm torn and frustrated. I desire to be in God's Word and spend time in, in prayer, and then I find myself overrun by all the distractions of the world and half the time not being able to get up even to read the Word. I'm split. I am, we are, divided people, double-souled. And James, this whole book, he's writing to help us, to bring healing, to bring wholeness, to help integrate our Christian lives that we may be one. Like our Heavenly Father is one, by the way. And singly devoted to Him, Christians of integrity, complete and lacking in nothing. Now, James, in this book, is going to help us examine all kinds of double-mindedness, double-minded, I would say, issues in our lives uh, from the very start of the book. He's going to keep working these through, but he starts with two main areas, really three, but we're going to look at two of them today, that we must engage with if we want to grow in our wholeness. Areas that he'll tease out through the whole book, And I want to start with the first one that he gets right to, and he'll revisit it in the book, and that is suffering. Look at verse 2. Right after the welcome, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And when he says various kinds, he means both the the everyday trials of life, sickness, sadness, sadness. Economic struggles, family issues, poverty, unemployment, dealing with death, all that stuff that kind of everybody deals with in some form or another throughout life. And he also means the particular trials that come from being a Christian in this world. Perhaps the bigotry, the persecution, the hatred, the exclusion. He says, all of this, count it all joy. It's actually a pretty jarring way to start his book. The first thing out of his mouth is, count it all joy when you suffer various trials. Pretty jarring. It's almost like a slap in the face, I think. Christians, take your trials with joy. It's what he leads off with. There's no how, how are you, how are you guys, I miss you, I love you. He just gets right into this. And it seems a little bit insensitive and, and disconnected. Or even like some strange kind of macho, spiritualized uh, you know, masochism. Hey man, just dig into the pain. Get the joy. Might even sound a little bit like a shallow platitude that you throw out there when you're not sure what to say. And if you're going through tough stuff, in your life right now, you may be tempted to turn them off, to just close your Bible. But I want to say, we need not do that. Rather, let's look a little more closely at a few things. And the first is, note that James is talking to close friends. These are his brothers. He calls them brothers ten times in his books, his brothers and sisters in Christ. They're friends that are going through real suffering. That's why he introduces them as the 12 tribes of the dispersion. They've been dispersed, many of them have been dispersed because they've been under persecution in Rome. And by the Jews, some of them. And they've had to flee. They've left their homes. They left their wealth. They've left family behind. Many of them are facing for the first time real poverty in their lives. He knows their situations. These are his friends. He can picture their faces as he's writing this. So he's not disconnected. He's just getting straight to what he thinks they really need to hear. He knows suffering is their issue and that many of them are struggling and faltering because of it. So understand that. Understand that he... He knows these are his friends, and he's speaking this truth straight into them as he does to us. Secondly, note that he says, count. Note that. Count it all joy. He doesn't say, feel it all happy, the pain. He doesn't say, find your joy in the suffering itself. Play a mind trick, kind of like Buddhism. Deny and smile. It's not what he says. No, he... He leaves room for their honesty in their pain, for hating the suffering, for wanting it gone, for crying out to God. After all, it's not right. It's all a result of a sinful, fallen world. Heaven is a place where there is no more suffering, and we're supposed to long for that. But even as we struggle now, he says, count it all joy. The idea of count is to to reckon, to think it through, to to consider all of it, not just the pain, but the whole process of what God is doing. Count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He says, consider that. That whole process that God is doing, So that it may have its full effect in your completion as a Christian. And in this, find a deep-seated, real joy. And it's not joy as an exclusive emotion, by the way. Right? It doesn't exclude other emotions. It's not just that we're just supposed to be bubbly all the time. But it's that undergirding emotion. Yes, we feel physical pain and emotional trauma and we cry and we may even get angry at times, but undergirding all of it as we reckon through it, there's a joy because we are counting what God is doing. First, he points out that we should be counting the refining in what God is doing. See the word testing in verse 2? For you know that the testing... Of your faith produces steadfastness. That's not like, like he's put some exam out there to see whether you pass or fail. It, that word is used over and over again in the scriptures for a refining process. Like when gold is heated up in a fire to, to purge out the impurities and the dross, God promises to use struggles to purge and purify us. And, and we can count on that. And this refining leads to to what James calls, what does he say? It leads to steadfastness, which is this idea of this enduring strength. You think about muscle strength, you think about getting endurance, this enduring strength of faith. faith. Think of how a, a muscle works. It needs resistance for us to push against. With my little hand here, I have to do these physical therapy things. It's barely working. I take this off and I have to push against it and it hurts and push back to get a little bit stronger. That's what he's doing. He's healing us. Giving us real strength that endures in our faith. And it all culminates in verse 5 and verse 4 in, in this incredible wholeness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing, lacking in in nothing that God has for us as his children, devoted as his devoted children. It's a joyous thing to think about if you believe it. God doesn't waste any of his people's suffering as we respond to him in faith, as we reckon with his refining work. None of it's wasted Cancer's not wasted. Childhood trauma not wasted. Marriage struggles not wasted. Sexual issues and struggles not wasted. Bereavement not wasted. Loneliness and longing not wasted. Midlife depression not wasted. Identity and gender struggles not wasted. Wasted. They all become part of the melting pot of God's refining work to bring his full effect. What a joy to know that, to count that. And now Paul, and note that Paul says, we know this. Look at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness he says you know this we know this in our life's experience people know this in the world people say no pain no gain they get the idea we know it in our own lives even if we haven't recognized it consciously we know that God is you struggles it's basic wisdom and of course if you've been a Christian for any amount of time you probably know saints brothers and sisters who exemplify this in their spirituality. They've been through the ringer and trusted God through it all and they are some of the most beautiful, whole people we know with an integrity to their lives that we admire and and a mature, real joy. We can point to some of the famous, maybe brothers and sisters, I think of, Johnny Erickson Tata, if you know who she is, and what she's gone through in her life. I think of Joseph Bailey, who went through all kinds of suffering and losing his children. He was such a father to my parents. I think of John Waltz, who, if we were inside, would be sitting right where Emily Malone is sitting. <laughs> some of you know him. I think of some of you here. Christians James is calling these believers and us to reckon through our suffering this way. We must, because suffering is is part of the deal for us. We worship a suffering servant savior who calls us to take up our cross and follow him. So we don't have to deal just with the, the regular suffering of life and death that's just par for the course we are also on gospel mission that will bring bring trials and testings to our lives it's guaranteed this is why Peter tells the church not to be surprised by suffering as if something was abnormal I have to read this to you because it's just over a little bit in uh, first Peter let's see here first Peter chapter 4 verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. My friends, if we refuse to reckon with our suffering in this way, to, to apply this wisdom... Discounting wisdom, we will be divided and split people. We will not be able to live out our Christianity with integrity. We won't be able to. You see, when I engage with suffering blindly, without, without this perspective, this wisdom, it just fosters the double mindedness that's there in my soul. I say I love God, and then suffering comes. And if I don't have this perspective, deep down, I'm angry that he's let this happen. So I'm torn and I'm split. I say I love people, but then suffering comes from people. And I have no grace for them. And I'm torn and I'm split. And of course, I, I justify my sinful reactions by the suffering. I know I shouldn't be impatient like that, but you know what I'm going through? I know I shouldn't have lost my my temper, but do you know what I'm dealing with? I know those were hurtful words, but I'm in pain. I know how I'm supposed to live, but I'm not going to do it because I'm suffering and that justifies it. James is trying to integrate us as people, and he says, as people as in our Christianity, he says, you've got to get a grip on suffering. You've got to get a perspective of what God is doing. Otherwise, my suffering becomes the very instrument of my dividedness and my torn life if I refuse to reckon through it, to think through God's work in it, to count it joy. Now, if you're sitting here right now and you're, you're having a hard time hearing this because your trial is pretty hard. Maybe it's a very hot, fiery trial in your life right now. I want you to notice where James goes next as he addresses their dividedness. He moves from suffering to what? To prayer. Look at verse 5. Well, let me get there. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, what wisdom is he talking about? Any random wisdom? No, he's talking about the wisdom to count it all joy. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. The ability to take what they know, that God refines us through suffering and uses it to complete us, that wisdom will be given to you if you ask for it. That's what wisdom is in James, by the way. He doesn't say give him the knowledge. Wisdom is is taking that knowledge and applying it to live by it. He says, if a person lacks wisdom, let me read it again. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. This is so encouraging because I know how unwise I am I know it when suffering comes like painfully breaking my arm just before summer started my first reaction is not oh joy God is going to complete me that's not my first reaction is it no I usually start by wallowing in it a bit and then getting angry and even in a sideways way, blaming God. And then I use it to justify my sinful behavior towards others. And then I selfishly milk it for all it's worth to get attention. Notice. Poor me. And then I just mindlessly pray and hope that God would just take it away as soon as possible, fix it, fix it, fix it now. With no thought of what God might have in it for me. My mom kept saying to me, God wants to slow you down. And He has. And maybe that's what it's for. Maybe He's teaching me patience and, and reliance. Maybe He's literally keeping my hand from sin that <laughs> He knows is coming. He's like, no, better break His arm because He loves me. No, I just want it gone. And I know I'm not unusual. The Apostle Paul, what did he pray? Three times for the thorn of the flesh to be removed before he kind of settled into God's plan and began to count it all joy. But the good news, the encouraging thing is, James says, if this is you, like me, you're not very wise, he says, pray and God will give you the wisdom you need. He will help you apply this knowledge, to reckon through it. How do we know this? How can we count on this? Because he says he gives generously to all without reproach. Our God is not stingy. He's not like the pagan divinities whose followers have to beg and plead and dance around fires and cut themselves and make sacrifices to try and manipulate him to do something. No, our God is lavishly gracious. That's the gospel. He wants to give to us. He wants to give us his wisdom when it comes to helping us live out our faith. He is right there, ready. In fact, the word here, generous, in the Greek is the word hapless. It's a very interesting word. It's actually a word that it, 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 it's, it basically means single. Sometimes it's translated sincere. He gives sincerely. He gives singly. Our God is singly, sincerely devoted to giving us what we need to make us whole as his children. Here we are, divided, right? We're divided souls. One foot in the world, conflicted with our allegiances, but not him. He is all about helping us, blessing us with his wisdom, so we can ask in confidence. But when you get to verse 6, there is a but, isn't there? There is a condition, interestingly enough. But let him who asks in faith... Let him... Excuse me. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord... He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He says we need to ask in faith when we ask without doubting. Now, I used to think this was the most impossible qualification. I mean, everybody doubts, at least at some level. So I'm being uh, required to have this this purity of faith, to have this level of faith that, that I don't know if I have to get what I'm asking for. But that's not what's really being said here. That's not what this is about. You see, many scholars make a strong argument that the Greek word translated "doubt" here has, has in most of its many of its contexts, has a very legal connotation. It has the idea of contesting or litigating. So that sentence might be better translated: "Let him ask in faith, without dispute." So what is being talked about here is not a faith that is doubting whether God can do it. Like, I need to ask, knowing God. It's not that. But a faith that is disputing whether we really want it. It's not about doubting God's ability. It's about disputing our own desire. It's about our own dividedness. James is saying, don't be conflicted in your request, internally disputing what you really want. Don't be double-minded. He's talking about the kind of prayer where my words are saying one thing, but my heart and my desire is saying another. I'm insincere in my request. I'm saying the Christian thing, but I don't really want it. That is so real. Do I really want God to help me count it all joy? Can I sincerely pray, Lord, I just want you... I I just want your will. I want your refining. I want you to be shaping me as your child no matter what or how long it takes. I want to be able to count it or all joy. Or do I just want out of it now? Do I just want comfort now more than I want completeness in him? James says when you come conflicted like that, when you come in two minds... You are unstable and you won't receive anything. This is a bit searching, isn't it? It's hard to know my heart. My friends, as I was wrestling with this this week, I just thought, this this is where we have to look to Jesus. There's no other way. The one who on the eve of his crucifixion, knowing fully what he was about to face, the suffering, the physical and spiritual suffering. He was sweating blood because he knew what was coming. And thus, in all honesty, he cries out to the Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way out of this, let's do it. Please. He begs. But then what does he say? But not my will, but yours. We need to be able to look to him for that. That oneness, that integrity. Hebrews says he's the author and perfecter, completer, teleos, of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand on the throne of God. He's seated. You read on in Hebrews. What is he doing? He's interceding for us there. This is who we are praying through to the Father that should give us great hope we must look to him so we can learn to pray like him now I figure there are kind of three kinds of people sitting out here today when it comes to suffering there are those who have endured great suffering in their lives and the Lord has refined them and, and they've learned in many ways to count it all joy it's not that it's all done it's going to go with us to the very end until heaven but they've been refined and they have a readiness in their life. They're steadfast and abounding in the qualities of the Lord. And there is thus a unity to them, an integrity to their lives. We look to those believers. They're the real deal. And they're here and what a resource they are for us when we suffer. Then there are those who have yet to endure much suffering in their life. because Perhaps it's because you're young or your life has just gone pretty smooth so far. If this is you, this is a chance to prepare your heart. Because let me tell you something, suffering is coming. If you're truly following Jesus, it's coming for sure. This is a chance to kind of pre-examine yourself. Are you ready? Or are you divided in your life right now? You need to ask yourself today, what do I really want? Can I really say I want God to use whatever it takes to refine and complete me, even if it means I'm suffering? Do you have one foot in the world and kind of one foot on Jesus? Are you unstable? Just realize, by the way, that, it, that this whole idea that, I, hey, I'm going to choose comfort now, it's a big lie, by the way. Choosing comfort over suffering for the Lord now, what does that mean for eternity? Choosing suffering now for in Christ, that's where comfort comes forever. This is why Christians, if you've, If you've given in to living for the comforts of this world, this is why you're so torn and divided and unstable because you know, as James says in verse 3, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, which brings completion, but you can't seem to live accordingly. You can't act wisely. You're torn. And he says here, pray to our lavishly, generous God for help. Ask him to give you wisdom beyond yourself. Get others to pray for you. This is the time before the heat is on in your life. And then there are those here who are in the heat now. The suffering is upon you, and you are struggling This sermon is hard to hear and maybe your heart is bitter and exhausted so you can't even bring yourself to pray this way. You just want it to stop. Maybe you know that it's interfering with your relationship with the Lord and you find yourself wallowing in bitterness and doubting the goodness of God. Two things. First, remember, that's why God has given you this family. You're not alone. You can't pray, maybe, and, and if you can't pray, ask your brothers or sisters to pray for you. Be honest, let us know, let us pray on your behalf. I, I, when I was thinking about this, I started thinking of the four friends that brought their paralytic friend to Jesus, and the text says that Jesus looked at their faith, And he healed him. And remember this. It's a fresh start every time you come to pray. Maybe you haven't been able to. It's a fresh start every time. Did you notice in verse 3 how it says that when he comes to pray, uh, how it says that when we come to pray to our God, our God gives generously Without reproach. Very key little phrase there. That means that when we come, he doesn't have that list of grievances against us. He doesn't hold a grudge. He doesn't say, oh man, it's Carrie. This guy, he wouldn't even talk to me for months, even though all the good things I did for him. He's so double minded. Now he comes and it's a fresh start every time. He's generous without reproach. He's waiting for you to come and ask in sincerity so he can lavish his wisdom upon you, that you can count it all joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we read these words uh, that can be really hard, we know that they aren't foreign to you. That you've faced all the suffering for us. That your son was made perfect in his suffering for us to be our perfect sacrifice. And we pray now in his name and through him, that you would help all of us to count it all joy, and that you would make us complete, whole believers. In your son Jesus' name, amen.